You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. If you don't, that's fine. You can just sit and listen. That's, that's a wonderful. We're in this sermon series, The Majesty of Christmas, seeing the story of Jesus like we've never seen it before through characters that maybe we wouldn't even think of, like the innkeeper's son. Last week was Mary's mother. Um, Pastor Landon did a great job with that one. And so today, after watching this video, let me just say that some in contemporary writing today, (laughs) talk about bursting your bubble, aren't even sure there was an innkeeper. See, sometimes we contextualize passages of scriptures to meet our understanding, and yet that may or may not be the understanding of the original writer. Anyway, here's what I do know. As I stand here this morning and as I sat there in my church office, in our office, and prepared this message, I know that someone humbly opened their doors to Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. But there's something deeper that I know. And that is is that that same humility and service shared with that family is the same exact humility and service the very Christ child asks of everyone who comes to know him and serve him. The description found in this passage is their very actions, the very actions of Christ himself as he left the glories of of his pre-existent eternal state to enter humanity and die at the hands of others for each of us. That's a pretty powerful statement. Let me read this again. That scripture passage that Pastor Landon read earlier from Philippians 2 is the only description found for the very actions of Christ himself As he left the glories of his pre-existent eternal state to enter humanity and die at the hands of others for each of us. Powerful. So why does Paul focus on this humility and ask his readers in Philippians to follow the example of Christ as described here? Why? Because Paul knew something. Paul being a pastor and an evangelist at heart knew that if they did The issues of church unity, disunity, would be gone. He knew it. He knew that if they followed his words in Philippians chapter 2 and actually took the humility of Christ and placed it in their own hearts from Christmas and placed it in their own hearts, church disunity would be a thing of the past. With these greatly debated passages of Scripture, sometimes we miss the very simple points. And so this morning, I want to go over the very simple points. My goal was not to blow you away with deep theology and to blow you away with big points this morning. My goal was to take this text at the very simplest of points and walk you through this text. I want you to understand that. You may walk out of here today saying he didn't blow the world apart this morning. That's okay with me. But if you understand this text that explains him coming from perfection to get dirty with you a little bit better, I've done my job this morning. Because when you understand this text, 
things change in the church and in your personal life. When you don't understand this text, things will continue as they do. It's powerful. It's a powerful text. So Paul is driving here in Philippians 2, what he's driving at here is starting with the theme of today in Advent. First blank on your sermon outline and will be on the screen is completed joy. Completed joy. That's the third Sunday of Advent. Joy, the pink candle. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. The first verses of chapter 2 are coming from the context of suffering for Christ. The Philippian church was not exactly in the best of worlds. We are not exactly in the best of worlds. Paul just finished saying that the suffering is a gift, and we approach that gift with courage and unity in Christ. In other words, if there's anything that we need when we are up against it, it is the church. It is brothers and sisters who will come alongside of us in unity in Christ, maybe not agreeing with everything we do, but at least agreeing with Christ as salvation, Christ as the answer, Christ as the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love. That is what we need when we are up against it. Yet many turn their backs from that place when they're up against it. In this context, Paul makes a proposition to the Philippians by asking them to make his joy complete. He's speaking from experience that says that even in suffering, there is encouragement in Christ. He can be built up in remembering what Christ has done for him and even what Christ is going to do. He knows there's comfort in love, Paul does, through the pain and uncertainty, the love of God of his brothers and sisters in Christ provide a tangible comfort in the harshest of times. He knows that he's participating with the Holy Spirit, and this point speaks to loneliness and weakness. Even when no one is on your team, when you have no strength, the Holy Spirit is with you, and he is fighting for you. So here's the question. It'll be on the screen as well. How do we complete joy? I mean, it's nice and dandy that Paul mentions it in Philippians chapter 2, but how do we do it? And finally, he says, if you love me and if you sympathize with me, which he has already referenced that they have, they have proven they have done that, then make my joy complete. Notice everything that he's about to ask them to do is about how they relate to each other. Each other. As the body of Christ, he says, here's how you can make my joy complete. It'll be up on the screen here. They're going to fly in. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, no selfish ambition, no conceit, count others as better, look out for others. 
Philippians wanted to be joy completers for Paul. And in the same way, we should want to be joy completers for each other and for Christ. What would it take for you to complete someone else's joy? You know, Paul didn't mention any tangible things in this list. There's no buy me a steak dinner (laughs) or do this perfect list of things and then you will make my joy complete. No, it's all about how do you relate with one another. Sort of like what Jesus says at the end of his life. When you you know the teacher is about to give you the, the best that he's got and he turns to his disciples and what does he say? He says, you want these people? You want these people out there? You want those people on the other side of these windows to know you belong to me? Love one another. Stop making it about you, Thomas. And Peter, for goodness sakes, humble yourself. Now there's this wrestling match that goes on in all of us, and and at least in my mind it did, so I put it in here. Sameness versus uniqueness. Aren't we all supposed to be different? Aren't we all supposed to be unlike anybody else and to embrace our uniqueness? This sameness versus uniqueness is a healthy tension in a Christian. On one side, God created us with unique talents and interests and tastes. He did. We have different experiences and strengths and weaknesses. And to ignore that and say we should all act and be the same would be unwise and would belittle God's own creativity. It's possible to make idols of tradition and comfort, isn't it? I mean, let's be real with each other. Sometimes we can put the idol of tradition above anything else, and then when tradition isn't met, we don't really stand unified. This is how I've always done it. This is how we've always done it. One pastor in our denomination says those are how ministries, those words are what kills ministries. We can't do it any other way. We've always done it this way. On the other hand, if we put individuality above God's plan for us to be part of this, his church, then we make an idol of uniqueness. If being you hurts others and draws attention away from Christ, then maybe you're being the wrong you. Trust me, these have stomped on the size 14s up here way before they stomped on yours. Here's some helpful questions as we work through our individuality in Christ kingdom's work. Just some questions that I came up with that I wanted to throw out to you. Is my individuality building up others and and specifically the church? It's a question we can ask. Am I putting the gospel above my preferences? 
Do I care more about how people perceive me or about how people perceive Christ in my life? Do people feel encouraged after spending time with me? How well did I serve the needs of the people around me? Powerful questions. And as I typed them, I sat back in my chair and thought, <laughs> I don't like my answers. And maybe you don't either. These questions get to the heart of what Paul's talking about when he says completed joy. When the church has a unified goal of Christ proclaimed and honored and a deep humility in their selves. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. He continues with a humbled mind. Listen to verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Did you know you were given a mind from Jesus Christ? He gave you a gift of a, of a mind. What is that mind? It's a humbled mind. Well, what does that look like? It looks like a mind that rejects self-importance and the idol of self. See, God is most important and others as second to most important. Hear me on this one. Humility is not thinking about yourself, is not not thinking about yourself. It's thinking about yourself a lot less. That's humility. See, what some people will say is like, you know, I went through this period of time when a doctor looked at me and said, you better lose some weight or you're going to have to have a surgery or you're not going to be, it's not going to be a good surgery for you because recovery is going to be horrible. Some people would look at this and say the humble response to that is, well, doc, you can go take a hike off of a long pier because I don't care about myself. No, the humble response to that is, I should probably lose the weight. It's not, not thinking about myself. That's what we sometimes do is we just beat ourselves up. We do the Eeyore moments, right? Woe is me. I'll never measure up. I'm not going to think about myself. I'm not going to care about myself. I'm not going to... I'm not going to do what I need to do. I'm just going to let myself fall apart. And in all reality, that's not humility. That's self-pity. In other words, this new mind doesn't come at the expense of self-care. You can still care for yourself well without idolizing yourself. The truth is, is if you're not doing a good job caring for your mind and your body, you're not going to do a good job caring for others 
Self-care is still focused on others. But Jesus gives you this humble mind, and Paul teaches us the standard of the mind in verses 6 through 8. I want you to picture this now. Jesus had the greatest reason for self-importance, did he not? He was his God. Jesus was in the form of God and still not able to take for himself all the rights and privileges that came with that position and existence. Let me reread verses, or starting in verse 6. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, if there's someone who deserves a birth that is bigger and better than a, than a manger scene in Bethlehem, it's Jesus himself. He deserves fireworks. He is God coming in human flesh. He deserves the biggest and baddest celebration that they can give him. And what does the scripture text say in, the, um, in Philippians chapter 2? It says he, he doesn't use it to take advantage of it. He chooses to leave the perfection of his pre-existent situation. And come so that he can rub shoulders with us. On this broken world. He didn't use the reality of what he had for his own gain. Instead, the scriptures are clear. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. God himself became a servant. The one who most deserves to be served lowered himself to be a servant of those who deserved the least to be served. This is how powerful Philippians chapter 2 is into our world as faith church and as individual believers. Powerful. That God, who could say, you know, get me a lemonade. <laughs> decided not to say get me a lemonade. No, decided to come in human form so that he could, he could make an impact into our world. The next point that Paul makes is this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The word appearance here can be confusing. Paul is not at all saying that Jesus was God in heaven and became something other than God on earth. He didn't become something different or give up his godship. He simply lowered himself. The word appearance in verse 8 means he came born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he was taking the appearance of a man. When he emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of being God, only the appearance of God. Jesus was and will always be an equal part of the Trinity. Paul's very clear here. We know this because of the context of the rest of Scripture. Just one place that teaches us that Jesus was not just a form of God, but he is God himself. At the same time, the Father and the Holy Spirit exist in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58. Here's what it says. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see 
my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming he's God like he did with Moses at the burning bush. He is I am. But it's confusing, isn't it? Sort of like the Trinity. If you're a new Christian or you're not a Christian, or if you've seen, if you've been a Christian for a long time, the Trinity can be very confusing. How can God be one and three at the same time? I remember being in junior high youth group. Landon, Pastor Landon can be glad that I'm not in his junior high youth group because I remember them trying to teach us as Trinity in junior high. And I said, well, wait a second. When he's in the garden, which is the picture up here behind me. So you're telling me that he's praying to the Father through the Spirit. And yet he's all of those. And I couldn't wrap my head around it as a junior higher. I'll be honest with you, as a 45-year-old, I have a trouble wrapping my head around it. Even if you're somewhat confused, though, the main takeaway is, is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he humbled himself in Philippians chapter 2. So here God himself took the form of man, Verse 8 says it this way, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God the Son, who is equal and one with God the Father and God the Spirit, chose not to grasp that equality and instead to make himself obedient. Obedient to the will of God the Father in order to save mankind. And that obedience, that obedience wasn't easy. Not only did that obedience mean leaving heaven and all the perfection of that, it meant living a difficult human life. It meant suffering and agonizing death. It meant taking on the sins of the world and their unbearable consequences. And last, it meant suffering death himself, itself. powerful but jesus sets the example jesus humbles minds jesus's humbled mind sets the example for us in every way he loved us enough to humble himself for us his humility was a mark of love he he this is what paul wants from philippians this is what he wants from us you see, what Jesus had, listen to this list, one and same mind, same love, full accord, no selfish ambition, no conceit, counted others as better, looked out for others. Sounds like a list that I listed off earlier. You see, here's what the greatest thing about Jesus is, is that Jesus isn't like some leaders. Some leaders will say to you, go and do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and they won't do this, this, and this, and this. It bugs me, but that's the way they lead. 
you go do this and this and this and I, I, you know, I'm somehow too good for this, this and this. Not Jesus. He says, church, I want you to be of one accord. Like I, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are of one accord. Church, I want you to take care of others like they are more important than you yourselves. Like I took care of you when you were still sinners. When you weren't making the best and wise decisions. When you continue to not make the best and wise decisions. Who am I kidding? I took care of you. See, Jesus isn't a leader that says, go do this, this, and this, and this, but I'll just do what I'm going to do. No, Jesus is a leader who says, go do this, 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 and this. And then he continually does this, this, and this and says, watch me as I do it. And he wants the same for you. He wants the same for you. So he was obedient. Obedient even to death on a cross. How obedient are we? I just want you to, I mean, talk about humility. <laughs> I'm sitting in my office this past week and I'm typing this up and I'm looking and I'm saying to myself, how obedient are we? And I kind of just stopped. Kind of stared at the screen. There's a reason why Paul puts these words in. He says he, he's even obedient to die for you. How obedient are you? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I try to come up with excuses why I shouldn't be here. And I got some pretty good, good ones. Why I shouldn't spend time in his word. I'm doing your work, man. Apostle Paul puts this here because he's watching these Philippians struggle and struggle and struggle and him himself being thrown in prison at this time and all of this stuff is going on in the Philippian church. And he says, listen, you can use the excuse of the, of the enemies to not be obedient. I mean, think about it. The Philippian church had every reason to not be obedient. It could cost them their life to be obedient. 
At most, it would cost them a standing in, 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 in their culture. You don't want to be one of those Paul followers. I mean, this guy is off the rails in love with Jesus. You certainly don't want to follow him. And so the apostle Paul in the church, in the church to Philippi, he writes to them and he says, listen, this guy, this guy was so obedient that he gave up all of perfection to humble himself so that he could come to a cross someday with you on your, on his mind and die for you. And then I picture the Apostle Paul stopping, and, and I realize this is just a picture. This is me taking liberty that, that probably what didn't really happen. But I can, and just stopping and putting his pen down, his whatever down that he was writing with, and just simply thinking, now Philippian church, what will you do with that in response? Does it even matter? What will you do with it? Jesus who calls himself I am, who else did God call himself I am to? Who gave the law? That's beautiful and marvelous and heartbreaking truth. The one who gave the law, the lawgiver, is now becoming obedient to death on a cross. The one who could have said, I'm above the law because I am the lawgiver. I'm the one that spoke it into existence. The one who said, I, I am the one who, who keeps everything in, in charge and, and in creation. And, and I was there when this all took place and everything. That one is now putting himself in a spot where he is now obedient you see, obedience isn't required of the lawgiver. No, the lawgiver usually demands it. But what kind of lawgiver do we have? The one who gives us a new law, the law of love. Our king is gracious and good, and he serves us even when we ought to be serving him. He continually invites us to the table. Come and eat. Come and partake of me. We deserved death on a cross, friends. It wasn't him that deserved it. He is the lawgiver. And instead of demanding it and saying, you will be obedient to me. No, he, he gives it all up. And he, and he says, I, I, I'm not even going to grasp it. I'm just going to push it away. And I'm going to go down and I'm going to be a part of this place. It was our sin that deserved the consequence. It was our punishment that should have been taken to that cross. But Jesus lays his life down on the cross for us anyway. He took our place in our punishment. It's true. He extends that sacrifice to you then. You didn't know coming on two Sundays before Christmas you were going to get an Easter message, did you? But you see, here's what you can't do in Christianity. You can't take Easter without Christmas, and you can't take Christmas without Easter. 
And if you try, you're missing a huge part of the story. You can't. Then it says, Jesus is highly exalted. In verses 9 through 10, here's what it says. 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself, therefore the Father has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name above every name. Even the name of Jesus is powerful. Even his name has value. Value seems too small a word. His name has power and authority and dominance. At the name of Jesus, what does it say will happen at some day? Someday, very soon, at the name of Jesus, the very name that they make fun of today, the very name that they put down today, at the, that the name of Jesus, even those who are ridiculing that name today, will bow their knee to that name. There's no doubt in my mind. Why would the Apostle Paul write this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit if it wasn't going to happen? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, in fact, is Lord. And the glory to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, but not just in one domain. At His name, creatures bow in heaven and on earth and in hell. Jesus will be confessed as Lord by all men and women for all time after Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom. But this all comes through his mind, humbled mind, obedience, and suffering. And so we have a choice this morning. And the choice is this. That innkeeper's son said something that was very, very important. Will you make room for Jesus? I mean, if you can picture this as, 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 as this being the... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just steal a chair here. I promise. I'm not going to throw it. All right? I promise you. This is the throne of your life. Right here, this, this, this chair represents you, the throne of your life. And what many of us try to do is we try to, we try to sneak it, not to be funny, but we try to sneak a cheek, right? I'll just, Jesus, you can have from here to here. You, you don't need the whole chair. Jesus, you can... Can you just kind of sit like in front of the chair and then I sit on the chair so I can make the calls? It's like, Jesus, I, I don't want to do it your way. Because your way causes me to grow. Your way causes my heart to, to mature. I would much rather just do it my way. I 
And so this is the throne of your heart. And some of you are pushing Jesus off all the time. You want to know how that comes out? That, that, that comes out prideful. The very opposite of humility. We're actually telling God himself that he, he doesn't understand us. Oh yeah, that's right. The one who made us doesn't understand us. Are you kidding me? You know, I see pictures of pride all the time. I promised myself I wasn't going to put any examples of those in this sermon today. I also see pictures of humility here at Faith Church. I do. But when we take Philippians chapter 2 really seriously, and we say it's no longer about me sitting on this chair, it's about Christ sitting on my throne. I'm, I'm almost positive, 99.9%, .9 that a lot of church disunity will go out the window. But as long as we sit on the throne, we call the shots, we'll continue to fight. I didn't ask his permission, but I'm going to say it anyway, because what's he going to do, fire me? We were sitting in the car driving to Ollie's the other week, Pastor Landon and I. He can't fire me, so I can share this. Well, at least I don't think he can. <laughs> we're sitting in the car driving, and I was having a rough week, I'll be honest with you. Church ministry was, was tough. And I was being a little prideful. Not a little, a lot. I remember looking over to him and I said, yeah, Pastor Landon, I'd, I'd really like to come to church service. This was, last, this was before last week. I said, you know, I, I don't... I know I said I was going to be away on vacation, but I'd really like to come back and just be at church because I, I knew the Philippians 2 was coming up and I don't want to be away from here when I'm in those mindsets. I love you all too much to be away from you in those mindsets. I need you. And so I said to Pastor Landon, I said, Pastor Landon, do you mind if I take on the early parts of the service and you just preach? And you know what his response was? I'll never forget it. His response was, yeah, you can take on. I mean, what was he going to say? He said, yeah, you can take on the first part of the service. You know what, Pastor Brett? Even if you wanted to preach, I would give that up. i tell you something. I was a 20-something-year-old as an assistant pastor. And I remember many a time studying hard I don't know that if the senior pastor would have come to me during those times when I've already studied and already put a sermon together. 
and said, hey, do you mind if I come this Sunday? If I would have offered for him to take the pulpit. That's humility, friends. It wasn't about Pastor Landon at the moment, and it still isn't. He saw the bigger picture. How about you? When we demand our way and only our way, we are not being like Christ. We are, in fact, telling Christ to go take a hike, and we have no room for him. And so the question that the innkeeper had to ask, if there was an innkeeper, someone had asked that day was, is my house, is my heart open to Jesus? Is it? Even if my name isn't in the lights, even if I'm not in charge, will I still support it? That's the difference between having room for Jesus and not having room for Jesus. And so on the back of your sermon outline, there's these lyrics to a song by Casting Crowns. Make room. Will you make room? Billy Graham says these words. One response was given by the innkeeper when Mary and Joseph wanted to find a room where the child could be born. The innkeeper was not hostile. He was not opposed to them. But his inn was crowded. His hands were full. His mind was preoccupied. This is the answer that millions are giving today. Like a Bethlehem innkeeper, they cannot find room for Christ. All the accommodations in their hearts are already taken up by their crowding interests. Their response is not atheism. It's not defiance. It's preoccupation. And the feeling of being able to get on reasonably well without Christ. I don't need Christ on the throne of my heart. I can do a pretty good job myself. Will Jesus find room in your humble heart this Christmas? Listen to the song. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com.